Ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've looked at our body as if it's just a mechanical thing, like a robot or a machine. Um, the same way we now look at our brains, that like they're computers because of the computer revolution. So, but you know, maybe it's not like that. And if we have that kind of metaphor about biomechanics, we might be shortchanging ourselves. We're going to find out more about that on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body. Typically, starting feet first because you know those things are your foundation after all. And we break down the propaganda of the mythology and the outright lies you've been told what it takes to about what it takes to walk or run or play or do yoga or crossfit or hike or whatever it is you'd like to do and to do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively did i say enjoyably trick question i know i did because look if you're not having fun you're not going to keep it up so find something you like to do and do it i'm stephen sashin uh, your host for the movement movement podcast and the ceo co-ceo now and co-founder of zeroshoes.com and we call it the movement movement because we're creating a movement and that we includes you, I'll tell you how in a second, about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do. And that we part is really simple. I'm not, there's no secret handshakes, though, mon no money exchange, no, you know, um, uh, theme song that we have. It's just that you can go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. Nothing to join. That's where you'll find previous episodes and all the places you can engage with us on social media. And of course, the simple request, give us a review, give us a thumbs up, give us five stars, like hit us, uh, get the bell icon on YouTube. You know, look, you know the drill. If you want to be part of the tribe and spread the word, just subscribe. So let us have some fun. Sean, do me a favor. Tell the humans who you are and what you're doing here. I'm Sean Float. I'm a licensed physical therapist. I've been, gosh, almost 25, going almost 26 years. Um, I really look at movement and how movement actually is a very natural process and how we can basically maximize that potential for health and performance. And I love the feet. So it's great to be here to talk to you. <laughs> uh, you know, in the early days when Zero Shoes was just a do-it-yourself barefoot sandal kit company, there was a bunch of pictures and a bunch of videos of me and my feet making sandals. And I got a surprising number of emails and direct messages of people going, uh, can you get more pictures of your feet, please? And so I, I, <laughs> I, I, I did not do that is the best thing I can say. So... Uh, so our little lead in about biomechanics, you and I were talking very briefly before we had this chat, because for people who don't know, the amount of conversation that I and a guest have before this conversation is like 30 seconds, because it's basically, hey, we're gonna have a chat. Let's get started. Okay, here we go. So but let's chat about biomechanics and the way that people are perceiving that or considering that now versus the way you're seeing it. Yeah, I think, I mean, back in the day, biomechanics was really looked at as the mechanics of how the bones and the joints interrelated and maybe how the muscles function. But over the years of really studying, I had a chance to study with uh, Dr. Tom McPoyle in a gate lab at NAU. That's where I got my physical therapy degree. And we started to look at other ways that from the foot up the limb, what were some of the dynamics that were going on? So I got a hunger for kind of thinking out of the box about what biomechanics was and looking at functional movement. And we actually even, we worked with a lot of the athletes and he never casted orthotics or anything for the athletes that needed foot support at that time. He actually had them standing and we actually used a soft material that he would put in the baking oven and modify it. And we would make some adjustments to what we felt were um, functional movements within the foot. And so... 
Well, so two, so two things. I want to, I want to kind of parse that a little bit. Yeah. So the first is, if we're looking at a body not as a mechanical object that's uh, basically hinges and levers and the things that move hinges and levers, how would you describe the difference um, in approach or the different way, the different viewpoint? Well, I think you're looking at it as an integrative system and how the foot actually responds through the whole walking pattern and you know you make those adjustments with a soft that's what i love about the movement toward minimalist shoes is there's less rigidity with what you're trying to do with improving the foot function and getting us back to a natural walking pattern or a running pattern or whatever that might be mostly dance dance revolution that's really our entire goal is to own that category um, which okay. by the way we kind of do so <laughs> And I only know that because I, because a couple of years ago, I got a bunch of emails from people right before a big international competition. Do you know that we're all wearing your shoes? Like I did not. That's really cool. Send me video. So, 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 so um, now the second part of what you said is that he, you'd have people standing and then you would still make something the way you described it. It still sounded like an orthotic. So tell me what was different with that. Mm, I don't want to say device, but it's the only word I can think of on a Friday afternoon, um, which is when we're taping this. Um, Just answer Insert. So tell me what that thing, give me an, uh, a description of it and what it was doing or what, how were you were making it or what the effect you were looking for or anything else you can say that's some variation of what I was trying to ask. You know, it was in a gate lab. So we had the ability to have force plates for how the foot transferred its weight. We had a tibial rotation pointer at that time, which was new. I mean, in the research realm of what the lower legs started to do in relationship to the foot. So we would look at the foot dynamic before and after and use just the simple digitation and cameras to make small adjustments in this soft accommodative. That was the word, was accommodative. It wasn't a rigidness to put the foot in a certain position through because you know you wanted that accommodative pattern so that the foot could do what it wanted to do. And then we would go back and, you know, pre and post with the camera and the force plate. And then as well as what was the athlete's response to injury recovery and then improved performance. So we so, actually modify that orthotic like every week during oh, their recovery phase. Well, so let me, let me dive into that a little deeper. Um, so, uh, when somebody would come in to work with you guys, were you doing this sort of gait analysis for everybody? I'm going to try and break this down into simple questions. Yeah. Okay, no, sorry. it was mostly athletes at that okay. time. So athletes come in and then you're doing some gait analysis. What are you looking for that would let you know? I mean, here, I'll give you the fun one. Did anybody walk in, you did the analysis and you didn't have to make something for them? Well, we were seeing people because they came with injury. Yeah, well, even still, you never know. Well, okay. I, I would say no. There was always something that could be adjusted. But what was fascinating is, you know, that was early on in terms of what we could do with the shoe and the orthotic. Right. We did. I, there was still PT doing some muscle training, but it wasn't what I know now. And what you're starting to see in the foot research and the what happens with the intrinsic muscles of the feet in relationship to force trends. I mean just i'm amazed at the way technology what we had then and what's available now to look at what really is going on in the foot 
Oh, no, it, it's and getting better every day. I was talking to some people this morning who got some tech that is mind blowing. But anyway, back to that in a second. So all right, people are coming in, they're injured in some way. And first of all, I love that you highlighted this is something that you were doing and changing as they were recovering, because this is <laughs> so when I talked to Irene Davis, um, who is the I, I will affectionately refer to her as the godmother of research on natural movement and minimalist footwear. Um her kind of wake up call because she was at the time teaching physical therapists or physical therapists in training at the university of Delaware, how to make orthotics. And she had this realization, like when people come in with any sort of injury, our goal is to keep them moving as much as possible in a pain-free range while they're recovering. Why are we doing the opposite with the foot? Why are we posting the foot? Why are we putting an orthotic in there that is stiff and rigid and doesn't let the foot move? And why are we doing that for things that have nothing to do with the foot often? And that's when she started kind of looking into this. And even uh, there are a lot of researchers, including uh, Ben O'Nig in Canada and many others who are the first ones to say an orthotic was never designed, even a hard, rigid one was never designed to be worn full time. It was designed to participate in recovery. The same yep. way you put a cast on your arm when you break your arm, or I'm sitting here after shoulders <laughs> on there to you know keep me from using my arm in any way while it recovers. And I'm doing movement things that are the limit of what I can do pain-free. Um, and so, so the idea that you are watching this over time and manipulating over time for recovery is the first thing I really want to highlight because that's of course, A, brilliant, and B, just, man, not what people do. I mean, if you go into an injury to most physical therapy clinics, they'll fit you for an orthotic, and they suggest you need to wear it forever, and they never look at it in any other way afterwards, unless they want to sell you another one every year, which is usually the case. Um, in fact, and I'll stop this rant in a second. When I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands, who used to be the head of biomechanics for the U.S. Olympic Committee, we watched a bunch of people running at super high speed, in super high speed video, like 500 frames a second, and and he would have people wear every different shoe that they owned, and we would watch their gait change with every shoe. And after seeing that, I said to him, this just proves that orthotics are bullshit. He's, and he had a little wry smile. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, if every shoe is different, you need a different orthotic for every shoe. And since those shoes had foam midsoles, as they break down, you need a different orthotic probably every couple of weeks. For right, every right, right. So um, assuming that orthotics you know, worked at all in that regard, which yeah. these were just athletes who weren't injured. They were just coming in for whatever, for improved performance, which means there probably you know, wasn't necessary anyway. So that's a whole other story. So, okay. So backing up, you're having injured athletes come in. You're going to make something soft and make some adjustments. So can you give me an example of like one of these, and I'm going to keep using the word devices until you give me a better one, what one of these devices would do and then what you would see both before and then after, and then we'll get to how you would change that over time. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the majority of it was to look at rear foot mobility and rear foot instability. So for people who don't know what that means, can you give that? Foot would be the heel bone and then the bone that sits on top of that, that interacts with the lower leg bones. They call it the talus, right? The talus and the calcaneus. And in between there, we call the subtalar joint. And so midfoot was later as I was starting to leave my graduate training, um, looking at what happened in the midfoot and the, more or less the translation that was required back and forth between heel to foot to toe and then the return. And that's where we're at now with 
you know, current understandings of foot dynamics, which I'm just in love with. But the idea mostly his focus was looking at sort of what was happening at the subtalar joint and what then was happening up the chain into the tibia, fibula, and then the ACL and the knee. That's kind of where we stopped. And so we were, we were just trying to see if we could gain back these sort of abnormalities or asymmetries um, from what he understood was sort of a range of optimal movement. And again, it was sport dependent, right? You had volleyball, tennis, cross-country runners. So we mostly focused on the runners. And so when you described that sort of that translation or that alignment between the subtalar, the talus and everything above that, you were making a kind of curving motion with your hand. Was that just, yeah. um, that, I assume that was not by accident. You were sort no. of, was, was <laughs> sort of that, 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 that rotational, moment. yeah. The yes. rotational spiraling um, that was occurring that you picked up with a pointer right at the tibial plateau below the, where the patellar tendon touches into the tibia, we would put, we would strap this, it was basically a wand with a dot on the end and it would, you know, rotate and give us an understanding of what was happening. Oh, okay. So let me try and do the, uh, the PT to English translation. So basically what you're, what you're, what you're noticing is that the relationship between the calcaneus, the heel bone and the talus and the tibia fibula um, is going to show up in how that shin bone, for lack of a better term, is rotating or not. Um, and that's sort of one of your diagnostics is what's that, what's happening in that, with that rotational effect. And so what would be like, you know, someone comes in and you're looking in and you're seeing a problem, what would that look like? And then as you're, and then I still want to hear like what one of these devices looks like yeah, and yeah. what it's doing and what you're then seeing to demonstrate that you've accomplished the intervention that you're looking for. So we often saw a delay in the sort of what we call outward rotation of the tibia during push off from like mid stance where the, the mid foot makes, you know, where you're basically your greatest amount of weight is down through the foot. What was happening in the tibia there and then what started to translate as they went into push off because that's the power phase. And so what were you, so again, give me an example of what would look bad um, and then you saw, saw very little rotation, like there was a lot of. Uh, oh, okay, interesting. And so, and so then, or, or what we often saw is, you know, either almost rigidity or just less power. Like there just wasn't, it was almost like there was something happening at the foot. And now we understand it more that didn't allow for whatever was going on in their foot with their shoe and the device that we support them with that wasn't giving them that power to make the propulsion forward, to locomote or to, you know, to propel forward. And so we're going to get to what it looks like on the good side. Once we yeah. the description of what kind of, you know, an example of what a device might look like that would be helpful. So the devices were basically, we would use a, it's called plastizote. It was a material that under heat would mold. And so they use those, now, like in ski boot insoles, you know, custom insoles. So we were using early on that first generation of plastizote, and we would palpate them standing in neutral. Where was their subtalar neutral? And I will tell you, looking back on it, there were very few people that could stand 
in subtalar neutral. They were already, their stance, and this is something we can talk a little bit more, just standing upright, they were already externally rotated in their subtalar joint. So they were, they were unable to be in subtalar neutral, just standing. So yeah, people are just misaligned to begin with. Now, do you think this, do you think that was a function of the injury or do you think that was a function of something, let's say further upstream that was out of whack? And what I'm thinking of is I'm going back. Well, I'm thinking of two things. I'm going back to Bill Sands where almost every runner who walked into his lab walked out with a list of um, glute medius and well, glute maximus, but mostly glute medius exercises because the glutes weren't firing well. And if the glutes don't fire well, that will lead to your femur being turned usually internally rotated and that'll mess up with your, that'll mess up your feet, et cetera, et cetera. So what, how were you seeing, or what did you see as the thing that was the cause of that misalignment injury or muscle disactivation or imbalance or back then i don't i we were seeing the injured state now looking at people both who don't have injury and people who are struggling say low back or hip or whatever the dynamic that there's bringing them into my clinic that they are struggling with i always look at standing And so in my yoga classes that I teach where people may not necessarily have an injury, they're fairly functional. You still see the tendency to be on the outsides of the feet. Mm. And this bridges the gap between my studies. Once I left physical therapy to study with a manual therapist who looked at sort of more wholesomeness of the body and used the foot as a, representation of a physical physiological interaction with the rest of the body and so that's where it's like my guess is Stephen, that these kids they were you know college students already had imbalances and then they were performing at high levels of where they were never screened they were right. never properly screened for mobility or foot dynamics um that aren't really in my world now, aren't based in biomechanics like I thought I knew back then. Got it. So, okay. Um, I've only said this one three times. I'm hoping we get to it this time. The device? Yes. Yeah. So we're just, (laughs) we would post like the heel to get them out of that external, you know, kind of being on the outside of the foot. Um, We might support them like in the, like where the, um, you know, the bony, part of the outer foot that people get real bony with that outer part we might post that a little bit where the fifth digit comes into some of the mid carpals or mid tarsal excuse me um so we would try and post them in neutral standing and then look at what they did dynamically got it that was a lot it was like it was less about arch support it was more about how we get them out of this kind of pattern So, and for, again, I'll do the translation. So posting is basically just a fancy word for, yeah. Writing down material and glued it on. Like We're we're going to stick something underneath your foot in some way. (laughs) You know, we were over there by the sander and, you know. (laughs) Well, you know, I love that because what, what blows me away is the way every time I was fitted for an orthotic, which had to have been at least a dozen times, if not more during my life, it was 
um, some, well, either standing or walking over something, but then they would, or, or stepping in a foam box and then they'd send that off. And what would come back would be something and you're done. That's the thing. No one's analyzing what happens afterwards. No one's modifying it. No one's tweaking it. And it was certainly not some, um, pliable material. It was not something that was there. It's just, it sounds like what you're describing. It's like, we're trying to give the body a bit of a hint more than we're trying to, you know, force it into some pattern. Yeah. We were nudging it out yeah. of, you know, without trying to create some rigid, this is the way your foot needs to be. Um, and gosh, why do something rigid when our foot is not rigid? Right. Well, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm starting, I'm, I'm starting to, to do this a bunch. I say to people, let me ask you um, what's going to sound like the dumbest question in the world, followed by a number of other dumb questions. <laughs> number one, is weaker ever better than stronger? And they go, no. I go, okay, dumb question number two. Um, if you're going to talk about your bicep, what do you do to make it stronger? And they go, bicep curls? Cool. What do you do to make it weaker? Uh, don't use it. It's like, cool. Uh, so your feet. If you want to make your feet weaker, then what would you do? And they go, not use it. I go, okay, cool. And um, so- Put it in a coffin. Yeah. So now <laughs> take your shoe and see how flexible your shoe is compared to your flexible foot. And they go, oh. So it seems so screamingly obvious. You know, you've got all these bones and joints that are supposed to bend and move. And people are like, are like oh, well, I mean, I guess I need to just have my foot not move for the rest of my life because I'm somehow- um, inferior to all other human beings. It's, it's a very weird thing. And so then I'm assuming what you're doing in terms of um, testing this device is you're making it, um, putting it in someone's shoe, watching them walk across the force plate and looking at that little tibial wand for the lack of a better term and seeing if it's actually starting to get that movement translated into the rest of the lower leg as they're doing that propulsive takeoff after mid stance and just modifying that until you're seeing what looks okay. They're actually getting force out of the feet. And then over time, what are you then doing? Cause you were saying you're modifying this as they're recovering. So what do you, you're then, what are you then looking for? It's giving you the info for modification and give me an example of like what a modification might look like. Well, the modifications would, you know, we would start shaving down that posting that mm. shifting them out of that external rotation or being on the outside of your foot kind of pattern. What was fascinating is I, I was more in the gate lab I wish I was more in the physical therapy place. You know, they were doing the traditional thing, which were like the towel grabs and the balancing on one foot and doing at that time, what I thought were what we did for the feet. <laughs> right. And now what I'm giving people for their feet, it just, the feet can handle a lot. They don't need to be babied. They don't need to be babied. Yeah. They bear so, all our weight. Yeah. So, so then I'm, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, then the number one intervention, if you will, over time as people are recovering is just less and less getting rid of stuff. Yeah. So you'll love this story. I was at the International Foot and Ankle Biomechanics Conference a number of years ago, and a guy who's a very big deal orthotics researcher, maker, et cetera, decided to try on our shoes. And um, loved them and set, came up to Irene Davis and said, I love these shoes. 
I think I'm going to put my orthotic in it. And he was doing it to try to rib her and like, you know, see if she was going to get all her head exploding or something. And she said, that's great. So do that for a month and then shave it down by 50%. And then if a month later, shave it down by another 50% and a month later, throw them away. And the guy went, oh, so I don't know if he ever did that, but it was super interesting. A, I mean, that, I, I love that. I mean, it's great. And, but there's, there's just not that, I mean, it's still growing and I'm hoping that that's, well, I'll tell you, continues just to like the, the, the problem, this is going to sound not surprising is that there are people and by people, I mean, companies and who hire people uh, who make millions to billions of dollars basically saying that we're full of shit and that everyone needs to be wearing some sort of support, some sort of orthotic, some sort of something for the rest of their life. And so the change and what I have found uh, much to my surprise is that when you start pulling the rug out from underneath someone who's making a billion dollars, they don't just go, wow, sorry, I was wrong. Congratulations. They go down swinging and they swing hard. And they start at your knees. (laughs) exactly um and so i i mean obviously part of my goal in life is to um make real what you just described is that we're going to try and get enough people to realize exactly what you said your feet can handle a lot including you and you don't need all this extraneous stuff that just makes them weaker over time so they can't handle anything including you and there's a book that I read recently by a guy named Damon Santola called Change. And the what's going to happen at some point or what, what has to happen at some point to have a significant change um, where, for example, all these companies making orthotics for all practical purposes just disappear. There may be some for, you know, when you do have to immobilize the foot because it really does need to heal and you don't want to move it. But by and large, you know, make them go away. Um, we need to get 25% of the population to think that that's a stupid thing to do. 25% is the magic number, according to all that research. That's when things go exponential after that. So just trying to get there. That's the goal. Cool. Well, that's better than I thought it would be. I thought <laughs> more like the third, you know, it's, it's a surprising, well, the reality is it's 25% within a community. And so if you start with, if you identify certain communities, you can get it there. And then eventually it becomes a population level thing. So you you start doing it in small communities. Those small communities are connected to bigger communities. And that's the way it happens. Interestingly, from this book, um, it doesn't happen from the top down with celebrities going, hey, look at me. I don't need this anymore because... First of all, celebrities won't jump on the bandwagon until there's a bandwagon because they don't want to ruin their credibility by saying something where their entire fan base is going to go, hey, moron. So they want their fan base to go, hey, thank you. know, you're part of the, f- the family. I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so. And the other um, thing I think that they need to, I think the other change that I would hope to see mm. is the foot is not separate from the rest of our, our whole body. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to say more about that, but I want to take a quick detour. Well, maybe not quick. I don't know. So you were talking about how most people that were coming into you, A, athletes, B, injured, were standing mostly on the outside of their foot. Mm-hmm. Most people think about when they think about any sort of orthotic or any sort of insole and what they're trying to deal with and prevent is what they have been diagnosed with, which is pronation. Can you, oh, you have that knowing smile on your face. Can you say something about that? I don't know what you're going to say, but I want to hear how you would address that. Well, first of all, pronation and supination are a continuum of movement. 
So mm-hmm. if you're more supinated and your foot rolls in to accommodate for your mass above and whatever activity you're doing, you're going to look like you have more pronation, right? Yeah. And so then on the other end of the spectrum where you have the flat feet that things collapse and the pronation is like, oh my God, the flat feet, you have no support. Like just the notion on both ends of the spectrum, the rigid, highly pulled up individual who as the foot starts to move, you get more pronation and everybody's, oh, that's that's the problem right there. Um, when in fact, it's actually, they're probably more held and, and rigid in their system rather than it being about pronation. Um, are you suggesting that people with uh, hypertonic high arches may be rigid in other ways? Because, huh. Um, I see it gonna... all the time. Oh, that, so wait, so what do you see? Because that's going to make some people lose their minds with the idea that we just told them that they're a little rigid. Because um, when you tell people that they are something that they don't want to be, they don't uh, typically respond to that very well. Well, uh, when I say rigid, I think more in terms of someone's not in their low center of gravity. Mm. So they have developed or been taught, or even you think of when you have like back pain or hip pain, most people want to move away from that problem. And in fact, they make it worse by leaving their center of gravity, leaving their center of mass where everything has its absorption and return of energy. I see it a lot. And oftentimes where you where when someone loses their access to their low center of gravity and, you know, basically they've been uprooted first place of stability is either pelvic floor and mostly it's the respiratory diaphragm. That's the next layer of stability when you're not in your low center of gravity. That's an interesting idea that if you're, if you have a chronically tight high arch, they're arch height predominantly genetic. So you can have high arches that are totally normal, but you've got a chronically tight high arch that you might see literally a similar arch pattern and tightness in the diaphragm. Yes fascinating yeah and it's i I mean i i would say nine out of ten people that i work with that deal with a rigid foot structure that you see a high arch the pattern i see is this um and that's you just sort of lifting up so now when you're working with someone like that do you do you start with the feet start with the diaphragm or do both at the same time i start with the feet (laughs) <laughs> and say why you do that and not pay attention initially to the diaphragm. Um, because they need, you know, the foot has so much sensitivity in it. Yeah. I mean, besides the face, the lips and the hands, the feet have more sensory organs in them for vibration, for sense and space, for, you know, you name it. Right. And so if that, system is hypersensitive because it's been pulled up or it just hasn't in a period of time, maybe a whole lifetime, not been able to make contact with the earth and begin to interact with the earth in a new way that gives a different feedback mechanism up the system. They won't let go. Mm. They have to, they have to trust something below them. Right. Let go of the holding pattern that they're in. So you're seeing 
people you're 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 suggesting that people when they're in this state are hypersensitive rather than they become desensitized like well, because what I'm hypersensitive to how their feet are working like they just okay. they're they're very protective of their feet ah uh, cuz it, it becomes more some people get very bony they start to develop those deformities in the feet right um and so they become the minute that they start to feel pain, they pull away. Just like any other part of us, when we yeah. feel pain, we pull away instead of what if it was possible to actually re- release into what really supports you? Love that. The, the reason that I asked that question is that I'm thinking that, I mean, one of the one of the functions of the brain, if you will, is that if you are going to subject it to some chronic stimulus, it's eventually going to habituate to that and you won't feel it until you, or with someone's help, you do something to kind of remind your brain, Hey, check this out. Um, and then there's an opportunity to do something different, but you know, we habituate to all manner of bad posture, misalignment, unpleasant feeling. I mean, whatever it is. Um, uh, so that's why I was curious about creatures um, of comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I mean, yeah. you know, it's trying to allow us to function adequately, not optimally, just adequately. And yeah. so if good, good enough. Exactly. So if, that, if you're going to make that hurt all the time, I'm going to make it so we don't notice that all the time, because otherwise you're not going to get anything done. Right. So interesting. So, so right. what you see being used now are like vibration platforms. I mean, the you know, the foot rubs ball back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was given this gift like 12 years, well, actually now 18 years ago when I moved to Southern Oregon. And I was like, oh, this is great. And now I've started using it more as a desensitizer, not break up adhesions or anything, but actually just to bring sensitivity mm. to the foot. And what my manual therapy teacher would say is circulation follows sense your senses. If you don't have a safe environment to be in, or if you're painful, you're going to withdraw your circulation and the nerves and all that from that. So first of all, for people who didn't see it, um, basically oh. imagine a, a, like a, something golf, a little bigger than a golf ball with spikes on it. Not, I mean, not too big, just, you know, yeah. rubber ball, spiky rubber ball. Um, there's a, um, do you know our friend, Dr. Emily Splickle? Yes. I love her. Okay, great. Who doesn't? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so Emily, you know, similar thing is the whole idea about circulation and movement it's, um, I mean, we hear it all the time from people, and I'm not making a medical claim here. We hear often from people who have like diabetic neuropathy that they're helped just by wearing our shoes. And I go, it's not our shoes. It's you're actually just moving your feet, which is increasing circulation. And to it, something like what you just said, something to add some stimulation and you got the Holy Grail. Now it's not going to necessarily help everybody a hundred percent, but it's certainly a good start. Um, peripheral neuropathy. Right. Yeah. Same thing. It can be reversed. Yeah. I, I, it's happened to people in their late 60s working with simple things for their feet. Well, again, I, in their feet. Well, and, and my version of that is when I when I when in the early barefoot running days, like 2009, 2010, when people were doing like barefoot runs all over the place, I'd meet people who they had been in shoes long enough and their brain, literally their brain had changed enough that they just couldn't feel if anything hurt. 
So they do a barefoot run and they go, Hey, that felt great. And their feet were like ripped to shreds and they had no idea. They had no, they just couldn't feel it at all. And I'd say to them, you got to do something just to get a little bit of safe stimulation to remind your brain, you have something at the end of your legs other than your ankles. And, um, and eventually you'll feel something and then you'll be able to make some changes because that feedback will be helpful. So it was, you know, even for people who are seemingly healthy, I, I'd see that often where they just, they had no idea what was happening at the bottom of their body. Yeah, and then once that, like, I see that too, people just, they lose that connection to their feet. Yeah. And then they look like walking, just they're rigid. So there's I, a little play there of being held up, but also like they've just there's there's no idea what their feet are doing. There's a woman in my neighborhood who walks her dog around the same time I do. She's in her 80s, um, late 80s, I think. And she's, you know, kind of shuffling, barely walking. Everything looks very stiff. And then I go to the track to like the senior games, and there's all these 80-year-olds and some 90-year-olds who are moving quite fine because they're then actually using their feet all along now there may be other reasons i'm making shit up but suffice it to say it's a very different world when you go to master's track meet and you see these people who are old um who are functioning better than people 20 30 years they're younger than they are or whatever i was trying to say yeah well, i mean like what emily was saying about once we decrease the stride length within our walking pattern how oh. that affects the entire system. Oh, there's a nurse at Duke University who did research showing a correlation between walking speed and mortality. And basically, if you were walking under, I don't remember what it is, maybe two miles an hour, the odds of you dying in the next five years was increased by some massive amount. Um, and of course, when people are not able to feel the ground um, or they're in a shoe that's super high and they feel unstable, then they walk slower. I mean, I can't think of any other way of saying it. It's like, holy. They have no force push off, too. Like, right, that's the other right. piece. Like, there's no, they just lose so much energy in that propulsion that is a return back from the way we touch the earth. I mean, I, it's just. That, yeah. you know, it's it's so interesting you say that. Um, I see two things about, uh, two things about that that I find interesting. One is the runners in my neighborhood, and there are a lot of really good runners in our neighborhood. Um, cause I'm outside of Boulder, Colorado, where I used to say my friend who's a world champion runner, I may as well just have said my neighbor cause they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, but I see these, these ostensibly good runners who, because they're in some big, thick high heeled shoe, they run with technically good form. They're landing midfoot underneath their body. Everything looks great, except that they, because of the heel of that shoe, they can't let their heel drop enough to actually use their Achilles and get that free energy return that that thing, that Achilles tendon is meant to give them. So they're working harder with a big, thick shoe. That, that one always gets me. And the other one in terms of getting that responsiveness, that energy return, um, when I hear people who get like one of our sandals and they'll say, Hey, the sandal, the, you know, the, the, the front edge flips down. I go, no, the front edge doesn't flip down. You're just catching your toe as it's passing uh, underneath your body and you're catching the sole because they haven't, they've somehow lost that reflexive thing that after you weight your foot, as you're coming off, instead of your toes coming down, they'll reflexively dorsiflex come up towards your knee and pass over the ground nice and safely. And I, and usually I just say to them, just give it a couple of weeks and watch what happens. But I, but no one's ever done research showing that 
for people whose toes basically drop because they haven't gotten that uh, propulsion that you're talking about by using their foot naturally. I'd love to see something that shows how that changes over time because more often than not, when people say I'm catching the front edge of my sandal, I go, just wait. And it'll, it'll happen less and less until you forgot that it ever happened. I mean, my God, I can't remember the last time it happened to me. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, I don't know if you see this is um, a lot of people don't push off. No. A lot of people lift their back leg to move forward. I, you know, I have a different take on this. Um, and we'd have to like analyze a bunch of people. Um, and this comes from something very fun. There was a podcast I heard the other day with the writer, David Sedaris, who moved to Paris and now he's living outside of Paris, I think, but he, his French friends say to him, you even walk like an American. And he said, what is that? <laughs> and he said, so what does that mean? And they said, you throw your legs in front of you. And so I have the idea that people are like literally kind of throwing their leg in front of them. It, the leg lands and then they're pushing off kind of pogoing or almost pole vaulting over their front leg instead of actually the, and maybe we're talking about the same thing, just from a different angle, instead of using that back leg to move them forward, to propel them forward. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about, uh, so, I mean, I'm just, I'm saying the same thing. It's just that, yeah. that propulsion and return, that elastic yes. power that comes through there is a there is a signaling within the neurophysiology that says clear the foot will clear more you push off instead of let's hike the hip let's pull the femur got it you know to kind of yeah oh you're gonna lift or or you know pull it forward however that is but it's all i think in that whatever's happening for them in that lack of propulsion yeah yeah you're gonna get a kick out of this i've been talking about this i think maybe just once or twice on the podcast. So when I'm walking the dog there, we have a couple of big hills on the trails behind us. And I've started doing this thing that looks dorkier than anything I've ever done. And I've done a lot of dorky things um, when I'm walking up a hill. So I have my right foot planted. Okay. And as my right foot is planted um, and I'm getting past mid stance, so my foot's starting to come behind me into hip extension. I'm rotating my upper body to the left. Okay. So I'm getting a stretch in my right hip flexor. All right. When I put my left foot on the ground, as I start to rotate my upper body towards the right, the right hip flexor releases like a spring and my right leg comes forward with like almost no effort. And if I don't try to throw it in front of me, it just lands right underneath my center of mass, a little bit in front of where my left leg was. And then I repeat. So I'm basically just twisting my torso left and right and letting that hip flexor stretch release and just let the leg come back from that stretch release. And it takes like no effort to go up a hill. Mm. Again, dorky as shit. Yeah. So, but what you do I do? Something different in terms of how you're, you know, what you're doing is basically decoupling the upper from the lower. Yeah. And, and that thing in the middle, the hip flexor is the, is um, getting the effect Next. of that. Yeah. And that sort of stretch release stretch. In fact, there was a movement guy that I worked with when I was an actor 40 years ago who kept talking about when you walk, you want to release your hip. And, and I literally for 40 years had no idea what he was talking about till I started doing this. It's like, oh, that's what he meant. And you can do it without doing the dorky twist of your torso and just really feel like that hip flexor is just stretching a little and then relaxing. And that relax allows it to move forward if you kind of get the timing right. Anyway, to it's, I mean, it's a whole, but it's a, it's a whole fascial plane of right. how it's connected up into the, the torso. And I think even Emily highlights that as well in her work about you've got to have good thoracic rotation 
to be with the pelvic rotation to get sort of this forced translation to be efficient. I mean, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's similar to what Danny Dreyer talks about in Chi Running. It's a similar image that he uses of having, you know, your torso and your hips doing this sort of contralateral motion to allow running to be easier, to allow your legs to move easier. Yeah. Now, it just occurred to me that I said, you know, we're going to take a bit of a tangent. And I asked about pronation and then we went on wherever the hell we went on. And, <laughs> and I was not smart enough to write down where I wanted to come back to with what you said. Do you have any idea what it was? It was about the physical, physiological bridge that the foot's function is about. I love you. Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> so this is out of, this is work out of more from a osteopathic circulation, fascial kind of perspective. So okay. it's not mechanical. And that's why I think we look at it more physiologically because it's not in the physical realm of what most people understand as biomechanics. Got it. So it's another another escape from hinges and joints or hinges and levers. Looking at how is the body in its own intelligence regulating the tensions and pressures, which we would call forces, in the system. Mm. And that is based all in elongation tensions and pressures and in compression tensions and pressures. And the body protects the circulation number one. Okay. So that's a nice high level something. Now we got to dive in to explain that to humans. And to me, what what we end up doing is we will adapt how we walk, the arrangement of the, I break down the foot into three segments, back or rear, middle and forefoot. And I can share with you kind of how those relate in the body, because there's a fun thing that you can do with this. And you will begin to pick up by assessing the foot, how I work with the foot and understanding just mobility, that the person has a restriction further up the chain that needs to be addressed so that the foot can function better. And this is related to compression and elongation. Well, yeah, because we we have elongation for um, our body has to elongate, which in the world that I live in is how blood moves out in the system. So as I'm reaching for the earth, all of the the arterial blood and the connective tissues are all working in a way to give something to that leg. And then as the foot touches the ground, it has to be in relationship to the ground reaction forces that are coming up through, which is more of a venous return. So we know that by just simple, I mean, when I worked in the hospitals, we would use an AV pump, which is an arterial venous pump on the bottom of the foot to prevent blood clots. Uh, uh, uh. So- and that, that pressure against the midfoot where the, all the blood, the, we call it anastomosis, or all the blood vessels are in that richness in the bottom of the foot, that would help prevent venous clots. So if we're walking well, if our foot is moving well, it, the foot is acting as that pump that you were having. Exactly. When exactly. Interesting. And oh, then and- there has to be, you know, what is the accommodative means up the body, like through the diaphragm, through the rib cage, through the neck. Um, I pick up a lot of restrictions in the pelvis that show up in the rear foot, you know, where the, huh. we talked about earlier. And so that gets me back to like, how much of the dynamic is going on within the live structures of the pelvis that actually determine 
biomechanical movement. Oh, that's very interesting. Isn't that cool? That's really so cool. It, it flips people's idea that, oh, we have all these biomechanics and we need to address biomechanics. Well, you can address it to the cows come home. If that person has a restriction in the circulation, let's just give a big vessel like the abdominal aorta, which is you know below the diaphragm to your pelvis before it splits. If you have a restriction there and it's restricting or there's a sensitivity in the body that says, hey, you're binding this up. We need to protect this area. It will it will shorten the stride. It will lessen the impact forces to protect the vessels. Interesting. So what are the kind of things? That's a great example because I was going to say, so what are the kind of things that create these sort of restrictions? And using the one of the abdominal aorta, that's a awesome thing to consider because what is going to be constricting on the inside of your body like that? And then um, what caused that? And then what do you do with that? What do you do about that? How about somebody who holds themselves up? Oh, yeah. Back to that holding themselves up thing. So if I hold myself up, the vessels go through the diaphragm. Right. And if the diaphragm isn't allowed to contract and relax in its motions, it's a pump. It's a pump. And blood pressure Mm -hmm. is only a compensation to overcome a blockage or a restriction in the blood flow to get to vital organs, to the kidneys, to the lungs, to whatever. Oh, interesting. So whatever is, you know, you can also have abdominal fat, you can have other things, but primarily if we look at it from how we function in our lives, dominance with your right hand, like you're going to only be using your right hand for a while. So that asymmetrical dominant pattern sets up a functional circulatory fascial pattern that you have to overcome. Oh, tell me if I'm putting this together right. Sure. So coming back from the beginning of our conversation, if we stop thinking of things as just, uh, uh, you know, hinges and levers, for example, now we're starting to talk about things that are much more, um, for lack of a better term, organic, much more fluid, or alive. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So there's motion independent of, uh, you know, hinges and levers. So there's all this mobility that's uh, that's a bigger piece of the puzzle. And yes, there's going to be joints and whatnot involved in that. But what sort of, I don't want to say underlying that, but at least working in parallel with that is this other perspective of this, of the motility, the mobility within site circulation. I'm assuming, I'm, and obviously breathing is going to be a factor in here as well. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. Interesting. And so like I had a guy, a gentleman online, because most people want to see me with my hands, but this guy was online and um, rigid feet, hands were stiff. And I said, could you stand? And he stood and he he was completely held up and you know like this is how he stood hmm. so yeah and head up like like neck neck fully tightened up i mean wow yeah just like and guess where most of his rigidity was in his foot i don't know in the forefoot so all right so that so leads the, back- all of the toes like he had these really gnarly looking feet high arch the perspective that i have and i can pull a diagram if you want me to oh yeah yeah Um, basically the forefoot the toes and the ball of the feet represent or have a relationship 
to the collarbone, neck, and head. So this is not, you know, reflexology, which nope. I will. Yes, I will. I'm going to annoy a few people by saying it's not like reflexology, which is bullshit. Um, this is a, yeah. but, but that is an interesting thing. So you're seeing a relationship between toe, bald foot and toes and everything from basically clavicle up. Yeah. So then and the midfoot yeah. would be heart, lung, diaphragm into the abdomen. So actually, wait, I'm going to come, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to retract my uh, reflexology bullshit. I'm going to suggest that what may be going on um, is a different thing than the idea of meridians and stuff that where, you know, this part of your foot is affecting your liver, but there may be a map that's similar where some of the midfoot stuff is impacting some of the same places that you're talking about, but not for the same reason. Yes. Yeah. There are, I think there are, there is some validity to the reflexology, but in terms of function. Yeah. In terms of how I see people walk, jump, stand, I'm relating what I feel and what I see to function because that's what's going to get them back on to a more normal pattern or not normal, but a more, a good pattern that they can work with. You know, it's funny. Um, in a way, reflexology or the idea of, you know, the meridians is being a thing. So here's a spot on your foot that's related to your liver. In a way, that's just as mechanical as thinking of the body as a bunch of uh, hinges and levers. It's like there's this one direct connection, but it's not about movement. It's not about function. It's, a, I don't know what how to describe that differently. Well, I think it's more of an energetic, you know, whatever, wherever that system was discovered. Yeah. It was discovered in terms of if I press here, I get an effect up here. Which again, sometimes, but again, but the effect doesn't require or isn't even diagnosed with anything functional or movement based. Correct. Yeah. And that's the missing link, I think, with most things interventionally is we've got to get that person to somehow mm -hmm. own the mm -hmm. freedom that is given to them in whatever intervention they're given. If they just, that was one, a big aha for me about, about 15 years ago, like great manual skills. People come to me to see me for my manual skills and they would come back with the same repeated pattern <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. I wasn't teaching them how to own the freedom that arrived through the intervention that they were receiving. And so then how did you learn to do that? It was all the standing work um, in all truth. It came actually from my Hatha yoga practice. Huh. And that's a whole other tangent. My Hatha yoga practice wasn't based in stretching or in any sort of do this to fix that. It was a very much an energetic practice that each shape had its own shape of the breath. And if you understood how things interrelated, you would find a way to counter your habits in your life. That's a very different thing than get into a 105 degree room and, and pump away, right? And pump away and just stretch, stretch, stretch. And so I began, you know, it took about seven, eight years, and I finally started to have a conversation with my yoga teacher and showing him some maps from my manual therapy teacher. And funny thing is, Yoga teachers born in Hungary, they're the same age almost. This yeah. is wild. Born in what is now in northern Serbia, 
my manual therapy teacher was born in Romania. <laughs> They're neighbors. They're neighbors. So somehow I fell into some brilliance that all of a sudden I began to parallel these worlds and use the, the freedom and look at movement and then begin to screen and adjust people to just gain some awareness of if you're on the screen all day, you're going to have a pattern. Yeah. If you're standing in a certain posture, if you hold yourself a certain way, if you breathe ineffectively, you're going to have patterns. And those things begin to build over time. And eventually the body says, That's I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> if you're lucky, if you're if lucky. If you're lucky. Yes. If you're lucky. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, a lot of the pain signal. No, because otherwise sometimes the, oh, you're not going to do this anymore leads to things getting really bad. So, well, um, dude, this has been a total, total pleasure. Um, and, and we could keep doing this for hours, I know. And I'm hoping yeah. that other people have that same feeling, like this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, that's a horrible metaphor, actually. But this is the beginning of something that can be much, much, uh, can be explored much more deeply. So if people want to do that, how would they find you, find some of the things we've been talking about, get in touch with you, et cetera, et cetera? Well, moving into harmony is my business and web page. Moving into um, harmony.com. Yep. Got it. And so there I have references. I'm redoing the website to be a little, cause there's just the expanse and the integration of what has come forward between the breath piece, physiologically, the yoga. And it's just, it's really kind of coming to a real sweet way of being able to present this to people. Um, oh. I have articles there. I also am, I'm teaching different classes uh, both in movement and in breath. Um, but I really hope to bridge out more with this understanding of how can we bring the foot into its true function and potential. And I, I just have loved what you have developed and, you know, have stayed in fortitude with an industry that has a lot um, of well, A, thank you. And B, we're not changing anything because we know this is the real deal. And so, and happily, we are not beholden to corporate overlords who need to make money faster by jumping on some variation of the latest trend. Um, and we have no intention of ever doing that because we know, did I say this is the real deal? Yeah, I know I did. Um, it, it's it, it's actually really fun in, from my perspective, because when you're arguing from a position of truth, you can kind of just keep you know beating on the other thing all day long because there's nothing they could say. It's funny. Um, uh, I, I've had this fantasy of being on a panel discussion with people from big shoe companies. And I've been on those panels before, but I've never done the following thing. I want to pull out a giant stack of paper, like two feet high and say, so this is, um, these are pronounced of like every study proving all the benefits of natural movement. And then here's another pile equally high. Here's all the studies showing the problems with quote, normal footwear. And then let me grab the pile uh, of studies showing the benefits of normal footwear. And um, yeah, there is no pile. And and just we're just trying to get because, again, you can do things like that when you know you've got the truth on your side. And then people will bring out some study and it's going to say, hey, this shows that, you know, running barefoot has um, caused injuries like, yeah, two things. Um, they never analyze people's form. It's not about the footwear. It's about the form. It's about using your feet correctly. And and by the way, the thing they call an injury is actually just what happens when your body adapts to working correctly when it hasn't for a while. So um, it's very entertaining when people try to 
argue about this and they they know less about what they're arguing with than we do on our end which is very fun yeah and you know also like we talked earlier just about the the insensitivity of the feet and so yeah. goes yeah. out barefoot who tests for that and right drive, the, you know the mental like i'm just going to go out and run barefoot now because it's the thing so who's no. testing the driver <laughs> no one <laughs> right well you know back to the sensitivity thing um i on the way into the office this morning i was listening to npr and there was a guy who wait i gotta see if i can get this right um Oh, come on, come on, come on. It was, what was the thing that he was, the thing he had developed? Um, I'm blanking on what it was. And anyway, the the um, the upshot of it was, it was something that he had developed. I can't remember what it was. And he was saying, this seems to help kids with ADD and autism. And he says, I, I thought it was because it was creating this dopamine response and people weren't like kids who have ADD and autism don't have a sort of low level dopamine trickle that, that quote normal people have uh, neurotypical people have and that this thing that he was doing this intervention was actually creating that dopaminergic effect but then he tested and it wasn't and he says i'm not sure what's going on but it seems like there's some kind of stimulation and i'm jumping out of my chair in the car going no that's it it's the stimulation yeah. and because you know we have all these parents who are saying kids with add and autism they're functionally better and they only want to wear our shoes. I'm going, right, because they're starting to use their feet. They're actually getting that stimulation and it's comforting. It's creating a little, oh, that's what he does. His whole thing was about white noise, red noise, all the kind of background noise stuff. And he was saying, we we're trying to see what these do for kids. And what it's doing is it's creating a level of stimulation that is quiet, that quiets down the in inherent incessant stimulation that's already going on in their head. My, my way of saying it is when I lived in New York city, I could meditate better on a subway because the noise of the subway was a little louder than my thinking. And so I didn't have to pay oh, attention. Yeah. To yeah. yeah. So, so he doesn't, you know, you don't need the dopamine thing. You just need the neurological stimulation part. So, um, and that's a whole other thing. We, again, we Oh my gosh. Yeah. We can do this all day, every day. All right. <laughs> Moving into harmony.com. Yeah. That's where that's where you can find Sean. I encourage you to do that. I hope this conversation was um, as as interesting and provocative for you as it was for me. I'm saying that to people listening and to you, Sean, too. Um, I don't know why. But, um, <laughs> but more importainly, also, don't forget, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes, all the ways you can find us on social media and engage with us there, um, and all, all the different places where you can find the podcast if you don't like the one where you already found this one. And of course, where you can leave a review and give us a thumbs up and hit the bell icon on YouTube and subscribe to hear about future episodes. And like I said, if you want to be part of the tribe, the tribe moving this, being part of the movement part of the movement movement, uh, then just, you know, uh, do that. And if you have any questions or comments or recommendations, people you think should be on the show, or if you want to tell me I've got cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, I'm cool with any of that. Drop me an email, move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, look, go out, have fun, and live life feet first. <laughs>